0: Welcome to Drive Time, our UCLA Anderson FEMBA podcast. This is Dylan Stafford, your host, and today I have a very special guest, uh, associate professor of finance with tenure at UCLA. Professor Bruce Carlin is is our guest today, and for those of you in the entering class, uh, he will be teaching. He will be teaching the core finance in spring in the flex section, and in one of the all-day Saturday sections, so many of you will get the chance to have him in core classes in the next six or eight months. Um, Welcome, Bruce. Ah, it's nice to be here. Thank you for squeezing this in. Gonzalo Fracius, our associate dean, asked me to to try to interview back at the interview you back at the start of the summer, but you've you, you're a busy guy, so thank you so much for making the time. I, I thought we could start. You have one of the more interesting backstories, in, in my humble opinion. I thought we could just start by letting you kind of tell people. Um, about your life before you became a finance professor because it's a it's an interesting story
1: oh it's a it's a that's yes it is um, unique i um I was a surgeon before uh, deciding to switch careers into finance um, and I guess we, we really have to go back to my childhood to understand why that transition took place um, as a child I was um, very interested in math uh, advanced in math and Always liked technical things, um, and but I grew up in a family where um, you know people went to medical school, and of course that, that was pretty much set in stone. Um, I ended up finishing college in two years and went to medical school when I was nineteen, uh, and it was probably before I had uh, maturity to make good decisions about you know what I really wanted to do. Uh, But I I went through medical school, I I, um, graduated in 1992 um, and then I uh, did a full surgical residency uh, and fellowship and and became a professor of surgery at Washington University of St. Louis. And so I practiced there and published uh, research, uh, taught residents how to operate um, and you know I have a, a textbook of surgery that was used in my subspecialty. Um, And it became clear that I would probably be a chairman of surgery by maybe my late 30s um, because of my publications and and national recognition and so forth. And so I I decided to pursue an MBA, and it was a FEMBA program uh, at Washington University of St. Louis. Yeah, it was a FEMBA program. And so I took classes at night and on Saturdays. Um, so I, I know what the deal is and um, I, immediately I started to realize that I should think about doing something else because all my love of you know, doing math problems and uh, working things out uh, came back and I was very inspired. Um, and so I came home actually uh, at the end of the first quarter to my wife and told her that I thought the business school professors had it made. Uh, because it was just such a wonderful thing to do. Um, and uh, she said, well, look, I think you should quit surgery and just start teaching at the school because you have a medical background. You could teach healthcare economics. And I said to her, well, that's actually not how it works. You have to get a PhD. <laughs> and so there's a big commitment. And so uh, she said, well, I think you should do it. And I, I, of course, debated her. I thought that this was a ridiculous thing to do, to walk away from my surgical career uh, and to uh, you know the big cost that I had gone through to get there and the risk Um, but after about a year and a half of exploration I I realized that this is I would be passionate about doing this Um, and we made the decision to go for a PhD so I ended up getting my PhD at Duke um, and I graduated uh, from Duke in two thousand and three, in two thousand and seven, uh, and then I came to UCLA and I've been here ever since. Um, so what's kind of interesting and and kind of applicable to uh, FEMBA students in particular, but also full time MBA students, is that uh, an MBA is an opportunity to you know restart yourself, um, you know find something that maybe is you know you're passionate about, Um, you know it's also an opportunity to tool up and become a better manager, better business person, Um, but you know some people come back uh, to get their MBA because they're missing an intellectual challenge um, and perhaps they're not that satisfied with their career path and so you know it's reflecting on um, You know what makes you happy and how you want to spend the next 30 40 years of work life um, is really important this is an opportunity that you can you know pursue something else and um, and if you're passionate about what you do then given that you're here at Anderson you're also talented and there's really no stopping you um, but day-to-day life becomes a lot easier uh, and more fulfilling in the future because there are some days when things go really well and you can take a lot of pride in what you do um, but there are some days that you know it just didn't go very well but if you can look at yourself in the mirror and say you know I'm still enjoying this it, you know, it didn't go the way I wanted it you know the passion helps you roll with the punches and um, you know it's it it becomes a a really fruitful way to spend your life Um, and so now some people will find it hard to they may feel like they want to do something else but they don't really know what it is Um, and the school does have some services for people to do career exploration and they're very Mm. good um in my case, even though i had uh a a uh a wife who is clairvoyant um <laughs> she 's pretty amazing yeah' you so bold with yeah me. um i you know i ended up uh going to a professional career counselor um and the career counselor you know helps you to figure out what you want to do with your life and it's uh it, it's pretty it's pretty interesting. It doesn't take long. Uh but the types of things that the career counselor will do is break down, you know, your day-to-day work um you know in terms of what is it that you're good at? What is it that you're not good at? What are the tasks you like to do and don't mind doing it? Uh what are the tasks that you really hate to do and can't stand and and things like this. And as you start to really put you know organize that you can take characteristics put them together um, and the goal is is to find something that is really great so in my case I liked public speaking Mm. I liked having being you know in control of my own time Um, I like doing high-level analytical things And I I like being around smart people and and having intellectual discussions, but I didn't want to just sit at a desk all day. And so that, you know, you start to look at, well, what are the possibilities? Well, being an academic and teaching, you know, very talented people and writing papers and research, this is just a natural for me. And so it really worked out. But that is something that I can recommend from my experience uh, that a lot of people um, might find useful.
0: Well, and and one of the things we, as we talked before we started, so your father was a medical doctor. Yes. So, so you, you said that the game in my household growing up, even though you had these really outsized math skills was that you're going to follow, you're going to follow the family. Yep. That's it.
1: That was it. It was set in stone. And
0: you did it at a very accelerated rate. Yes. What was it? I mean, what's it like to, to Go to med school at nineteen. Where I mean, did you were you conscious of that? Was it a big
1: deal? Were you noteworthy within your class? Well, there were actually um, a couple other people who were, you know, advanced like that. Um, I think what made that hard was that, you know, they the other students were actually adults, um, <laughs> and and I really wasn't an adult. And as people get to know me even today. I'm 48 years old, but I have the sense of humor and mentality of a 12-year-old. I I have not gotten past that yet. Um, So my wife actually has two children, me and my daughter. Um, And so, um, but even so, you know, when you're 19 years old, 20 years old, you can't even drink legally. Um, And so you're with other adults who have had not only their full undergraduate experience, but You know they may have had other graduate school or they may have held other jobs Um, and so they're at a very different point in their life and the medical I went to Northwestern Medical School which is in downtown Chicago so it's not like it's on a you know like the UCLA campus where there are a lot of undergrads and you can kind of No, we were you know I was really living in downtown Chicago as an as an adult Uh, so it was actually quite challenging yeah, yeah.
0: When, when did your when did you inform your father that you were transitioning out of the family business? How did that how oh, that they, receive?
1: They were horrified. Oh <laughs> my gosh, they were absolutely horrified. I, you know, we, you know, they came to visit us at that time. I was work. I was at Washu in St. Louis, and uh, they came to our house, and um, you know, I told them that I was leaving my practice. And I was going to go ahead and, and pursue pursue PhD in finance. Now, to make matters a little bit worse, um, worse, at the, not worse, worse. At the time, you know, in order to do a PhD in finance, you have to have extensive math skills. So, um, you know, you have to have almost uh, you know graduate level math. And so um, already you know,
0: before you just before to, you, just you do the, the PhD, in, just to get in the conversation, right?
1: And so. I had to take a year leaving my practice where I was full time in just taking math courses at WashU, and I took about 10 math courses in a year um, and went from calculus all the way up to uh, real analysis and you know I took everything probability theory and all of this stuff um, to the point where at the end of the year the the math professors I got to know them um Asked me what degree I was getting, and I said I wasn't. I was just, you know, taking the classes, and it, they were for credit, um, you know, in order to prepare for uh, a finance career. And uh, so they went and they actually gave me a d- degree in applied math for the work that I did during that year. But so I, here I am on the couch uh, telling my parents, well, I'm going to leave my surgical practice and I'm going to. Take a year and learn math. You're not an
0: entry-level medical doctor. You're you're now a professor. You're established. So to I'm your, a sur.
1: Uh, yeah, I was a surgeon, and you know, you've
0: made it. You've made it. You have. If you want to follow that pathway, you have a long runway.
1: Oh yeah, I was an expert witness, and uh, I published. I Think I have 30 publications in medicine, and I mentioned the textbook, and um, yeah, I. But it wasn't satisfying to me. Um, you know, medical practice today has. Uh, it's, it's different. Um, it, it was even different when I was um, in practice um, compared to what you know my father experienced and, and others. Um, you know you see a lot of patients, there's not much time to really spend with people, uh, you argue with insurance companies, but as you as you become super specialized in a tertiary care facility like Barnes Jewish Hospital in, in St. Louis, you you're an expert in a particular area and you see that all the time it becomes very routine um, and for an intellectual person that can be limiting Um, also surgical surgical professorships are different from say being a finance professor because um, surgery is where the money is made in the medical school and so you have most surgeons have a very full surgical practice and then you do research as a second you know emphasis whereas like what i do now um i treat the teaching and and the research equally uh but i only spend um maybe 90 to 120 hours a year in the classroom and the rest of the time is spent giving talks around the country and developing new research and uh and so forth and so the research is prominent in this career, and it's one of the things I really like.
0: Wow! So, and, and when when you completed the ten math courses, and they were asking what you were pursuing, you said, "Well, I'm." You weren't really dabbling. They went ahead and gave you a degree, and and that was all in, in preparation to to earn your PhD. Yeah. Why did you choose Duke? What was it that you liked about their finance program?
1: Well, it's interesting because. Um, I actually applied to UCLA as one of the schools. I didn't get in.
0: Uh oh! Uh oh! Uh oh! Um, and,
1: and as a matter of fact, um, <laughs> that's
0: just, okay.
1: Duke, oversights happen in admissions. No, actually, it's Duke is the only place I got in. Okay? Really? With and all that going. For with you. all of that, and so that's amazing. So first of all, getting you know, getting a spot in a PhD program for finance is very hard. Okay. Um, you know, each program may admit a few students a year and then, you know, there's maybe uh, 25, 30 good programs and that's it. And then you've got tons and tons of people applying. But in my case, people didn't really know what to make out of my history. You might have but, appeared
0: like an outlier.
1: I mean, Or actually as a dilettante. Yeah. You know, okay. somebody He's who is dabble. just a, you know, I just dabble in this, dabble in that. They aren't taking me seriously, and so um, the there was one professor there, uh, a guy named Pete Kyle, um, who may win the Nobel Prize at some point. I mean, he's he's a he's written some incredibly influential papers, but you know, he was a, a guy who liked to bet on wild cards, mm-hmm. and and actually in finance, that's one of the things you you learn about. Um, you know if you have a portfolio where you have a bunch of stocks you know you want things with you know good returns but you don't want to take a lot of risk but if you have options which are you know the right or the opportunity to buy the stock well if you have options on those stocks you actually want a lot of risk because you know it, it you're you know if you were a venture capitalist and you invested in say 10 projects, you know nine of them are going to fail, but the, you're looking for the Google. Mm-hmm. So you want a lot of variability and a lot of volatility when you have a portfolio of options. Well, PhD students are options. I mean, they're basically <laughs> options. And so Pete understood You that can
0: say this, you can say this.
1: They are, they're options. I mean, mm-hmm. they're basically, you want high, you want to take those shots because, you know, yeah, they may not pay off, mm-hmm. but if they do pay off, they pay off big and so luckily uh, Pete was intrigued and he he gave me a spot and um, he actually became um, one of my advisors um, and you know was you know really impacted my life Um, we used to sit on his porch uh, in rocking chairs for hours playing chess and and hanging out and drinking cocktails and you know he was a just a great guy and um you know became a family friend uh but if i if he hadn't taken the risk um you know i may not be here and so that was that's i i really owe him uh, a lot
0: that's i have i have an article from sports illustrated a year or two back about the the case for the outlier and it may it specifically uses coach john wooden so you know most top-tier basketball programs would not hire him with the resume that he presented to UCLA back in the day because just a little too much variance and people get scared yeah Um, because it's just easier to
1: yeah well nobody gets fired for buying IBM that's right you know and so if you do it and it doesn't work out you know well you just kind of went that path but you know taking you know taking chances pays off Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, you know, a lot of MBA students are young people mm-hmm. with a lot of capacity for risk, um, and that goes back to pursuing something that you really want to do. Even if it's risky, if you really want to do it and you've got talent, you'll, act, you'll be fine. Uh, but taking risk is a great thing for a young person.
0: Well I'm so proud, last week we had Leadership Foundations, we launched, we welcomed, we greeted, we educated, we engaged with 320 members of the class of 2019. And this is our most represented doctoral level accomplishment class ever. We have eight medical doctors, one dentist, eight PhDs, one EDD, and one DMA, a Doctor of Musical Arts. Hmm. So um, in in terms of advanced education, plus 25% master's degrees across the board. So. And these are people who are reinventing themselves. We have uh, a vascular surgeon here on campus. We have, let's see, we have a chair uh, from UC San Diego. We have another doctor who has a couple businesses on his own who's gonna fly in for flex. He'll be coming into your class from Houston. So we have some, I always suggest, you know executive MBA. We have a lot of executive MBA level people in the student body this year for whom I don't have to get this degree and I'm choosing to get this degree. These are people whose whose options will be fine, and they're, they're curious, they're hungry, and they want that, that what's next. So I think your story of listening for your passion, being willing to take a risk will resonate well. Yeah. You know, and I love that. Well, let's see, so you, you just took a year and uh, did what professors do around here, which is they, they cross-pollinate by traveling to other schools. You spent a year at Chicago. What was, what was that like, and what's it like to come back?
1: So, um, so I spent the year as a professor at the University of Chicago uh, Booth School and um, I taught uh, finance there um, and, y- you know, people always think the grass is greener, you know, in other places, other, you know, uh, departments, etc. and Chicago Booth is revered for its finance. Um, m- most academics view that as, you know, a top place to be um, and, you know, with very serious students and so forth. So, you know, I I was interested to see, you know, what it would be like and what the differences would be. Frankly, um, I I felt that our students were exactly on par with their students. Um, As a matter of fact, uh, you know, I I have to admit that the first time I, I gave my course, I gave the same exact exam there as I had here, and UCLA students had a higher uh, mean. Yeah, <laughs> this, is a, this is a true story. Woo! This um, is unscripted, um, you Yeah, unscripted. <laughs> I, I, this is true. Um, I will also say that the students are similar in terms of their demeanor. Um, hmm. You know, I've always found UCLA students to be um, you know, nice people who are collaborative and and polite to each other. Um, you know, I didn't know what Booth would be like, but actually they were very similar. Good people. Um, you know, Midwest values type people. Um, so, the, in terms of the student bodies, I uh, I didn't see that much difference. Um, in terms of um, my hobbies, uh, there was a huge impact in moving to Chicago I'm I'm actually on the master swim team here at UCLA and it just was not the same living in (laughs) Chicago Uh, I before I I left I was also playing on a water polo team and I I really couldn't do that either it's just there's a there's a lot less sunshine and outdoor pool time and so um, yeah that was not as satisfying uh, as living here and so you know, our family really enjoys Los Angeles a lot um, and it's, you know, that was a, that was a big difference. Uh, but all UCLA students should know that uh, they are at least on par with students that go to Chicago Booth. I mean, Chicago Booth has a, you know, a really, it's a great school and, and they, they're ranked really well. The students here should feel comfortable and confident that they're getting the goods here.
0: Well, that's yeah. That's I love to hear that. And and then you have just a statistical data point that's hard to argue with. Same test, better mean.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now the second time it was the same. <laughs> okay. But you know, it's not. We we weren't talking about a situation where uh, you know this was just at a different level or you know I had to go faster or this kind of thing. Not at all. Um, and it, it was you know the mean was the same. And frankly the the top end of the class we have just as many really talented people here mm. uh and so um it was good for me to recognize that uh because i like the people here too i mean i like the students a lot they're warm um and i you know you just never know um uh, but you know we really do have very talented students here
0: oh that's great and Winter Quarter, swimming in Chicago in Winter Quarter, yeah, because that was my alma mater. I was at Chicago Booth full time, and and I lived, moved there from Texas, and I had two roommates from Texas, and we all left for an offsite. Author Anderson supported this offsite weekend, and we forgot to leave the water running. In our entire, we had this carriage house there in Hyde Park, real close to where President Obama's home would be years later. So our home froze up. We couldn't. We didn't have running water for like ten days that's just it was the coldest winter they'd had that was the winter of 93 it was the coldest winter they'd had in a decade and we were we didn't have the right
1: clothes it's just i had never been there were indoor pools but you know at three o'clock in the afternoon it's already getting dark and you just don't you're not stimulated (laughs) to go and and that's why the the sunshine here you're stimulated and i think also what's nice about UCLA and they've marketed this as optimism I mean Mm -hmm. that's their kind of yeah, the the main brand the main brand but I actually think it's true the um, the the weather here and the sunshine here um, is uplifting to people um, and they become more creative um, and they there's research to support that too Mm -hmm. that creativity uh, is is correlated with you know good weather um now, of course, people who are creative may decide to go to cold weather, so it may be <laughs> endogenous, but the fact is it is correlated, and I think that the optimism and sort of the positivity uh you know here at the the campus is palpable
0: yeah I, as again as a as a Texan, I have the whole california mystique but but if you look at where where do a lot of the dominant trends of our culture come from? They come from the west coast and before yes. we had washington and oregon contributing it was it was really a californian phenomenon yeah um well what so you you're going to teach you're going to in in the in the in spring quarter you're going to teach two core mba full-time mba you're going to teach two core sections of fembas you know what, what do you like about teaching you said it's it's just a percentage of your year what's you know what do you like and How do you, do you tailor your material differently if you know people are full time
1: students versus they're still employed or do you teach it the same? Well I teach it the same. Um, The orientation of my course is uh, to give practical skill Mm. Um, and so while you you have to understand the background and kind of the theory of why you're doing things, um, in my in my versions of the core classes, we do a lot of cases, um, and there's a lot of student participation um, in during those cases. People feel pretty comfortable, um, you know, presenting in front of the class and uh, you know their findings. Um, but I think when people finish, um, they feel like they've gained skill that they can use in their jobs, and so course when you teach the core you have a mix of people some people are in the finance industry and have a background some people are poets and they they're afraid of numbers and um, so you know you have to teach simultaneously to this group of people and um, what I find is that there's really something for everyone Um, I think that the 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 people who are in the finance industry or who are recruiting for finance get the tools that they need to land good jobs, uh, they, you know, they, for, you know, and that the uh, people who are taking finance for the first time and are even nervous about it by the end of the course are saying, wow, I, I didn't think that I could do this, but I'm I surprised that I can, I can learn this. And so it, it, it's those people actually that give me the most uh, pleasure. Because they come to the class really scared. It's required. You know, mm-hmm. you, you have can't to skip this. You please. can't skip this. You got to take this, and you go, oh my gosh, um, I, I'm going to have to use that GRE math or GMAT math, and I'm going to have to figure this stuff out. And there are th- these people around me who are um, finance jocks, and you know, what's going to happen to me? And well, by the end, um, people. Are really astonished now you know going back to when I was a, a, a doctor I remember being intimidated because there were people who were in you know the finance industry that were in my MBA class and hmm. I didn't know anything I was a doctor I, I was like I, I barely I made lots of mistakes in investing and my you know my retirement and things like this and I mean I can tell lots of stories about that but I, you know, I, and I'm sitting in the class and I'm like, gosh, I, I really don't know anything. You know, I'm gonna get creamed and it's not true. You know, it's just like taking any course and you learn it and um, so there turns out to be something for everyone in the course. And how
0: much, you know, if you're talking to the average student, you know, they're gonna take the core course here. How much additional finance do you recommend? Do you have a, or is it case by case? How much finance is enough to feel like you know you're you've got those three letters after your name you're an MBA graduate from UCLA Anderson is the core class sufficient do you encourage people to do maybe one or two more electives or
1: yeah i i think that if you know for somebody who is not going to be in finance uh there are a couple of classes here that could be really helpful um you know to a career as a manager in an organization and so you know one of them would be the second course which is called corporate finance and that's how you kinda learn how to finance whatever things you're gonna do Um, you learn about risk management in a business you know how do you manage you know the risks that you're taking Um, and so you know I usually that's usually the next thing now a lot of people also who come to Anderson have Um, aspirations in their future to be entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. and so whereas that may not happen right off the bat um, you may do something else for a while um, people may want to do that and so we have a course in private equity and venture capital that is really good to sort of understand how to sort how to make deals with startups and and things like that and so that's a nice those are two things that I, I I recommend. Now, for people who are, um, you know, going into finance, um, I mean, I think that there's a, a full menu here mm-hmm. yeah, of things.
0: The deep dive. We have plenty for the deep
1: dive. Yeah, I mean, taking classes in options and derivatives, other derivatives, um, fixed income. Uh, we have uh, a world-renowned fixed income professor here, Francis Longstaff, uh, who. You know, during the crisis, he was called in to help various uh, companies manage uh, themselves through the crisis. I mean, he's, he's a consultant. I mean, he, he's one of the leading authorities, I, I think, um, in fixed income. Um, and so I think that's a great class. We have classes on international finance. Um, we have classes on um, uh, financial statement analysis and valuation that are taught by uh, accounting professors, which I think are excellent for people who are going into finance. Having a good, um, you know, having a good understanding of accounting statements and accounting is always beneficial for somebody in finance. Um, And so, and there are many other electives as well, but I, I, I think that, you know, people who are gonna, people who are gonna go into finance, they can do the deep dive, people who are not, there are still core competencies that you need to learn to really succeed in a corporate setting. And a lot of the people who have, you know, sort of taken my class, corporate finance, private equity, venture capital, they have really benefited in the, in the corporate setting uh, because of the, the tools that they've learned here. Well, we're we're starting to come to the end of our time. We we
0: mentioned that you're a master swimmer. You also let me know that you uh, have a couple other hobbies: poker player, whiskey connoisseur. What else should people know about how you spend your free time?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, you know. Uh, so, um, I so I love to play poker. Um, I do play in Vegas. I have played in some tournaments. Um, I run a tournament every year in December for uh, Finance Academics. Um, and that's, um, you know, we've had that at the Aria Poker Room. Um, Wow. Anybody anybody who wants to get a game together I am happy to play. Uh, It's a social thing for me. Um, Nobody has to be worried that I'm just going to take money and stuff like this. <laughs>
0: yeah, does Vegas let you into the city? I mean, no, do they they know, do. are oh, you a oh, marked man?
1: No, 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 no. There's a lot of really good players, and and. Um, but even with your sort of baseline math skill. See, but Vegas is different. Poker's different than blackjack because okay. uh, if you count cards in blackjack and you're really good at blackjack, uh, you can win, and you're playing that game against the house. Right. In poker, you're not playing against the house. You're okay. playing against other people. And so the <laughs> poker rooms take a cut of of the, of the um, pot. Um, and so they make money just if games are going on. And so it's really playing other people. And so that's why that's my favorite game in Vegas. It's that the odds aren't stacked against me. I'm actually able to make decisions and use skill with other people. Um, and that's what makes it... A, fun, a really fun game. Um, now the whiskey. I, I'm also. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a whiskey collector, um, especially with American whiskeys, and I spend time uh, in Kentucky in the backwoods, like wow. at gas stations, trying to find rare bottles, and really? um, I love oh, to wow. taste things, and um, you know, with it it's uh, it's a big hobby uh, wow. of mine. So, what's your most unexpected? story from traveling in oh, Kentucky looking for a- I've actually got a really good one. So this one um so I was with my um I was with my wife at Buffalo Trace and uh we did the 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 tour and then I looked for liquor stores nearby to sort of go and so um the the phone brought us to a roadhouse which was like a shanty, and um, I was like, "This can't, this can't be a, this can't be right. Like, this can't be a liquor store." And so, my wife, I said, "We should go somewhere else." And my wife said, "You know, I'm a country girl. We'll we'll be okay. Let's go inside." Your wife and, is adventurous. Yeah, my she goodness. is. <laughs> I'm so she goes. So we go in there, and it's the type of place where the townies are like shooting pool and smoking and um there's a bar downstairs and then upstairs is a brothel and oh my- <laughs> No, it's like it's that kind of a place oh my- in, in in kentucky and so we 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 <laughs> go to there was a older lady running the bar and we said is this a liquor store and she says oh yeah we sell we sell liquor come around the side here and we have them all on like these shelves and so we sit down and my wife notices that on the mantle there are an entire series of Pappy Van Winkle's bottles. Now, Pappy Van Winkle's is a very sought-after, hard-to-get whiskey. Okay, I mean, this is very tough, and I actually have a, a, a collection of them, but at the time, I didn't. And so, they had every single year. And so, my wife says, are, are those uh, are those Pappy Van Winkle's bottles for sale? And so, the lady says, oh, yeah. Uh, and so, My wife says, well, we have to try before we buy. And so the lady says, okay, no problem. And she sets up a bunch of shot glasses across the the bar and pours every single type of pappies into the shot glasses on the house. Okay, And so there was the 10-year, 12-year, 15-year, 20-year, 23-year, and the ride. All there for us to taste. Now, for some listeners at this point, they're... (laughs) <laughs> if, if you're driving the car, you may have tripped into a ditch or passed out. This, just to give you some idea, you know, a, a, a shot at of, you know, say fifteen, twenty, twenty-three year in Los Angeles, one shot could cost you fifty to a hundred dollars, wow. uh, maybe sometimes more. So here it is. We're we're just literally we tried them all. And then I basically made an offer to the guy. I said, I'll buy every bottle you have open or closed. And so the, the or it was to the lady, so the lady ended up calling the owner of the bar and he said, well, I, I want to keep the open bottles because we sell the shots, but I'll sell them the closed ones, uh, which there were a couple. And then uh, I have another one at home if they want to buy that too, well, so it's private reserve. Yeah, well, he had it at home, and so, <laughs> so we came to a price, and I said, "Well, how am I going to go get this?" And so, we he gave us directions, and we drove out to the middle of nowhere in Kentucky to a gas station on the Bluegrass Highway, and we met him at a gas station and made the exchange at a gas station. So I actually was able to find um, you know several bottles of Pappy's that way. And so, since that time, now I have a bunch of connections of people um, in <laughs> Kentucky. When new releases come out, um, in fact, I just got texted five minutes before we started that a new batch of Kentucky Owl just came out on the market, and a guy got two bottles, and I'm buying one from him, and he's going to ship it out here. Um, so it's a it's it's a very fun it's a very fun hobby to have. Yeah. Uh, and so. Um, you know, if there's ever a charity event where people are, happen to be playing poker or happen <laughs> to be drinking whiskey, I'm happy to participate. So um, Wow.
0: Yeah. I think that's the perfect way to end our podcast. I can't think of a more interesting. That's amazing. Well, I, I love the themes of following your passion. I love the themes of, of taking a risk. You know, dear dad, I love you and I'm going to go a different path um you know and and i love that you see you know that our part-time students and our full-time students i mean everybody comes here i think with a a bigger vision of their future and they're hoping that if they trust if they put their trust in ucla anderson that will fulfill you know we'll help people i always say you know people are already on an upward trajectory we want we want to raise that and we want that delta to be worth the time and money it takes to earn the degree and and i i hope those of you listening uh you know are, are kind of biting at the bit. Can't wait to, to get to spring quarter for for those of you in, in two of the five sections who will get a chance to have have this man teach you finance mm-hmm. and, and guide the poets as well as the quant jocks, everybody to a satisfactory conclusion. Um, so, yes, Gonzalo Fracio's told me you've got to interview Bruce. He's the most interesting guy and he was 100% right. Oh, so that's it's nice of you to say. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you working this into your busy summer and um, thank you all for listening. We will be... Back next week with, I hope, as interesting an interview as we got to have today. Thank you very much.